Hello everyone and welcome to episode 16 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello folks. Mark Stockley. See what Hi. And Matt Boddy. Hello. World. Oh. Coming up on today's show, Duck Talks Business Email Compromise. Matt tells us about how Google's cracking down apps access to your data. And Mark discusses the collection number one data dump along with the 10 year challenge. What have you been up to this week, guys? I've been playing Settlers of Catan. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. No more Game of Thrones. Are you well, over there? No, no, I'm definitely not over it's just Game having of a break. Thrones. But people got really bored of me being obsessed with Game of Thrones, so I had to put it to one side for a bit and adopt a new persona of being a Settlers of Catan geek. Seafarers, the expansion pack. <laughs> Different story. Awesome game. What about Settlers of Thrones? Oh, there, there, of there, is a, there is a Settlers of Catan Game of Thrones edition. Tempted to get that. In the build-up to Game of Thrones being released in a few months' time, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why this Hold is the door, funny. Matt. Hold the door. Speaking yeah. of board games, you've inspired me to rekindle my joy of playing online chess. Oh! So I used to spend a lot of time playing chess on a online chess website with actually with a guy we used to work with here. Oh! And uh, just he got really good, and I carried on being as ungood as I was at the very beginning, and then eventually. Got bored of not getting any better after your oh. missive on um, board games. Yeah. I've, I've picked up with chess again. So thanks. You're welcome. Do you want a game? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dark, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been messing around with code and obscure bicycle fixes. So the code is I decided I wanted to understand zombie processes properly so i spent some time doing that and my bicycle fix is i discovered that a shoehorn which you don't get a lot of anymore but the last one in the shoe shop is fantastic for removing mud from a bicycle because it's rigid but slightly curvy so you can get it in all the nooks and crannies and get rid of the mud that is clagging up the rotation of your wheel before we go any further, um, I would like to invite anyone that does like the podcast to review us. It helps people find us. You can also subscribe. Um, okay, back to cybersecurity chat. Last week, we wrote about US woman Marae Appert, who was selling a house she'd inherited in Australia. The house sale went through. The $150,000 was paid, but it never made it to the woman's bank account. Duck, how can something like this happen? It sounds, though, somewhere along the way, the crooks got into the somebody's email account whether it was hers or the company's is not clear so they're not just spoofing or forging emails pretending to come for the company they're able to log in and see what's going on so they're able to look at the correspondence figure out hey there's a lot of money here so let's jump in the middle and convince one end or the other you know that account numbers have changed the long and the short of it is that the, the company was tricked into paying the money that should have gone into her account into a completely different account, presumably believing that it was a business account that she wanted the money paid into. And of course, now this all has to be sorted out. How do you get the money back from the account it's gone to? Because the crooks have probably moved it. Where did the money go? And, uh, you know, what happens to the house? So, so how's, it, how's it possible that a company could pay out that much money to the wrong person? Well, if you think about it, everyone's on the lookout for phishing which is where you get an email that pretends to be from somebody else. The problem is with a BEC, a business email compromise, if that's indeed what this is, the crooks aren't just pretending, making it look as though the email came from someone else's account. They've got that person's password so they can log into the account 
And typically, by understanding when one of these scams is underway, firstly, the crooks aren't trying to get $10 out of 10,000 people. They're trying to get $150,000 out of one person at a time. So they can invest some effort. Each end of the transaction via email is much more likely to be convinced if the crooks are right in the middle of the email correspondence. They can control what get, gets sent. They can control what gets received. They can even make sure that when they send fake emails, they then delete them from the sent folder. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about this kind of situation is it's something you alluded to earlier, which is I don't think people realise they're not expecting the crooks to put in loads of effort. And it's not much extra effort for them. For the extra rewards, you know, if you think about how much they had to do in this case, they could probably be spinning something, you know, a number of these along at the same time, and they only need one of them to pay off. There's no evidence left behind in the mailbox because they're right inside there so they can delete it and control what each end sees. And typically, by the time anyone realises, then the crooks can cut and run. And although they need a real-life bank account, which is quite hard to get these days, they only need one per company they're scamming. And when that gets shut down by the bank or by law enforcement, then they can cut and run and move on to the next guy with a new account. And as you say, it's suddenly worth putting in all that effort, burning a whole bank account may have cost them hundreds or thousands of dollars to get. They're not looking to get back $10 from each person. They're looking to get back hundreds of thousands. So how do people avoid falling for something like this? I remortgaged last year and I was encouraged to do everything over email. So how do we avoid something like this happening? Companies need to make their email accounts more resilient to compromise because so much is at stake in email. Not just everything happening electronically, mainly by email, but also the fact that email is the vehicle for password reset for loads of other accounts. So two-factor authentication obviously raises the bar for the crooks. And if you're on the other end of this and you're dealing with a company even like in this poor lady's case, she's in the US, there in Australia. She can't just go there. She's got to rely on doing it over the internet. Before you start, try and establish some kind of second means of communication with the organisation. So you're not just relying on this one conduit email that could get compromised. So make an effort to find out who you're talking to. Maybe speak to them on the phone while the going is good and kind of figure out what their voice sounds like. And that gives you a fighting chance of double-checking without relying on compromised email to do the checking. So when, I, when I'm trying to contact somebody that I am doing some sort of business with, quite often what I'll do is I'll find their telephone number through my favourite search engine and then give them a call to clarify, if, if, especially if I'm transferring some large sum of money. Would you say that that's the right thing to do? Is there anything else you'd suggest, suggest doing? If it's someone you've dealt with before... If you've got some paper correspondence with them, that's actually worth a lot because it probably has phone numbers printed on it. Well, the problem with relying on a search engine is it is possible, if the crooks are prepared to invest a little bit, that at least in the short term they can make an artificial website go up in the rankings. You know, For example, if you need to get in touch with your bank in an emergency, for goodness sake, don't believe, don't rely on any information you received in an email. Probably if you get out your credit card and turn it over, there'll be a number on the back. Therefore, there are sources that you can trust more than just relying on something that's online. Uh, and I think one more thing just to add to the advice. I think in this particular, uh, with this particular threat, there's a, there's a role for user education as well. So particularly within companies, I think telling people, new starters and juniors, that they may be subjected to pressure from people pretending to be their seniors 
that they might they can expect to receive emails, urgent emails saying you need to transfer money, urgent phone calls saying you need to transfer money. Because it's not unusual in, inside organisations to find people who are relatively junior but have uh, responsibility for what the ability to transfer quite large sums of money. Yeah. Certainly enough enough money to in, uh, to interest some thieves. Yes, and that's why this BEC, Business Email Compromise, does get the name CEO fraud and CFO fraud because those are the email accounts that the crooks are keenest on compromising because then when they send an email, it doesn't just look like it came from your CFO. It did come, well, from your CFO's mailbox. And, of course, with access to years' worth of sent emails, the crooks can use copy and paste to speak the language perfectly. They've got automatic access to all the company jargon. They know how this person normally introduces their emails, whether they say, dear so-and-so, hi, g'day, or whatever. And, of course, they get the company signature on the bottom of the email for free as well. On to our next subject. Google's gone old school. It's going to manually review every app that wants access to a smartphone's SMS or call logs. Matt, can you talk us through what Google's plan is? I can, yeah. But before I do... I want to ask you, do you know what happened in May of 2018? It was a rare thing that happened. Uh, no. You should know. I wrote an article for Naked Security and it was released. That is rare. It is rare. It is rare. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I wrote was about how Android apps are sending unencrypted data. And do you know what happened in August of 2018? Did, did you write another article? I wrote another article for Naked Security. <laughs> wow. I know. I know. It's almost and as if you're due another one. It is almost as if I'm due another one. Um, you're making me nervous now that I should write stuff and I'm <laughs> bad at my job. Anyway, so in August 2018, I wrote an article called, that was about if your Android apps are listening to you. So specifically talking about if they're using your mic or camera when you wouldn't expect them to be. Also, in August of 2018, Android 9 Pie was released, which addressed, for me, two major things, although lots of other things as well. Two major things. Firstly, it said that apps need to use HTTPS by default. So um, it forced apps to go down the HTTPS route. Secondly, it restricted access to your mic and camera when when apps were idle. So talking of SMS, in October of 2018, Paul Bankhead, who is a director of product management at Google Play, announced that there was a change coming to the Google Play Store. So he said that SMS is the next thing on his big privacy list. At the moment, you have to request access to SMSs and uh, your and call logs on a phone through an API. So these are the permissions available to apps on your phone? Precisely. So if you allow access to apps on your phone for um, S, uh, for call logs or SMS, they've got this huge amount of stuff, information on your device that they can have access to. And that's what Google wants to address. So they're, they're, what they've done is they're, they're, they're restricting access to those APIs, which are currently freely available at the moment. They're, they're not quite freely available, right? You, have, you still have to put your app in for approval and they can, the automatic system can see that the app will request these permissions and then does some kind of automated, oh, well, that looks okay. It does look like what it do- says it does. But now they've decided that maybe letting the machines rule the world has not been good enough. 
and maybe someone should actually look at the code before it goes live. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So, so what they're now doing is they're going through a manual review of every app which is currently on the Google Play Store to be able to see whether they are using these API permissions properly, basically. So if you want to be a spam filter, for example, which is yeah. a good reason to look in an SMS, yeah. presumably, if that's what you tell Google now, that's actually why I want this permission, they can go and have a look and see, but hang on, that's funny. You're reading it in this part of your program and that part of your program and not really using it for what you said, then you'll get thrown out, won't you? Yeah. So, well, if you haven't, so you have to kind of write a use case to Google if you're already in the in the. Um, Google Play Store, you have to write, you have to submit a permissions declaration form to be able to say, this is the reason why I'm using it outside of your scope. So the scope would be, it's the default SMS handler, or it's the default phone app on your mobile. So this sounds quite good in, in as much as even if it doesn't deal with the extreme cases, there may be loads of apps that have gone, oh, well, we'll ask for that permission and we'll do a little, we'll do something with it that's okay, but we might find something really cool. And in three years' time, we'll have the permissions that we want. Now, you'll have to put it in writing and you'll Google then get to decide mm, that's maybe you were overreaching there a bit. Exactly. It's so, about time, isn't it? Yeah, it is about time. But the, the really interesting part of this, surely, is that you've got you know this, this enormous technology company, which has invested so much money in machine learning and yeah. provides machine learning systems and is, is telling everybody that the future is machine learning. Oh, and you don't need antivirus software. And has set this, you know, <laughs> and invests enormous amounts of money in things like, uh, you know, fuzzing where you can throw billions of error cases at pieces of software that they've decided, okay, they're really serious about this. So they're going to put people on it. I think, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure if I'm really happy because it's like, Hooray, there's still a job for people. Or if I'm I'm a little bit sad that, you know, the the maybe we're talking up the technology beyond, you know. So my friends that are data scientists, I've had this conversation with them a few times whether machine learning will and automation and AI is going to replace quite a few jobs. And what they've said is that it's quite often been an enabler for jobs because actually would they be able to do this task without automation and machine learning? There's quite a good chance that they wouldn't be able to because there's, I can imagine there's going to be a lot of apps submitted to the Google Play Store on a daily basis, which is why the current automation is in place. But be, by using machine learning on that data, you'd be able to bring to the forefront the most dodgy looking apps. So well, that's I, exactly the approach that Sophos Labs uses, isn't it? Yeah. We haven't introduced machine learning and artificial intelligence into our software so that we've solved the problem forever and all the analysts can go to the beach for the rest of their lives. We've done it so that the boring, repetitious bits that are quite easy to automate, we can automate more reliably, but we can actually triage or pick out the important stuff more precisely so that out of the however many it is, 400 and however many thousand new samples we see per day, there are probably three or four that if we look at those, if we know which ones they are, by looking at those, we get the best insight into what's coming in one month, three months, six months' time. And if you can automate all the rest, letting people focus on the stuff that's both interesting and important really helps. It doesn't get rid of jobs. It just A, makes them more satisfying, and B, makes them more useful. You don't have to do the mundane, turn the handles of redoing the same thing over and over again. You're looking into actually interesting cases where 
perhaps they are misusing something. And in the in the case of Sophos Labs, they're looking into interesting cases of where malware is doing something really dodgy. Being able to free up those people to say, okay, here's the really key stuff. Let's look ahead. Let's hope Google can get this right. Because you'd imagine with in in an era of WhatsApp and everyone not using SMS anymore, that kind of SMS and phone calls are much less important. But when you think about it, for an identity thief, the kind of things that you do do in phone calls and via SMS, they're the kind of things that give a fantastic insight into your life. And so Google's going to be doing this not just for new apps, but ones that are already on the Play Store. Yeah, yeah. So new apps that are getting introduced by people that are wanting to get their app onto the Play Store will be reviewed manually. And ones existing on the Play Store will, will, will have to submit a permissions declaration form to declare why they're having access to those permissions. And if this works out well, maybe they'll start doing it for other permissions as well. Well, yeah, that, like, I said, like I said, the they're obviously very concerned. Well, Paul Bankhead, the Director of Project Management for Google Play, is obviously very concerned about this because of the changes that were released in Android 9 Pi where he's made HTTPS by default a, a thing that, has, that is supposed to happen on all apps uh, and also restricting access to the mic and camera when apps are idle. So that privacy and app permissions are obviously a big thing on their agenda. On to our next subject. Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned site revealed a massive new data dump late last week. It's been dubbed collection number one and it's huge. 87 gigs of data, 12,000 files and 1.16 billion unique combinations of email addresses and passwords. Mark, can you talk us through the story? Well, that's most of it actually. Um, but the, the, the one thing it's not, interestingly, is new. So it's a this giant fatberg of data that's just suddenly washed up. But it's been out there in the ocean, in the dark corners of the internet, slopping around <laughs> for two or three years by the looks of it. What's happened recently is uh, Troy Hunt, as he does, has acquired this data somehow, sifted through it and put it into his website, Have I Been Pwned? So you can go along and investigate and find out if any of your email addresses are part of this collection one uh, Databerg. You can also use the site to see if any passwords that you use um, have ever been involved in data breaches as well. But it's it's far from new. It's a new story and it's new to us. It's not new to the criminals. It's not new to the guy that's been selling it for the last however many years. So the newest password slash email address in this collection number one is what, two years old? Um, probably. Okay. So, so the, the guidance that we have on this, so um, Brian Krebs picked up the story as he does, you know, uh, an important investigative journalist within the computer security community. Uh, he looked into this and he got in contact with the person who was actually selling this stuff, who goes by the moniker uh, Sanixer. And oh, I was hoping for more giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> no animals. Um, anyway, he got hold of this person. And from the sounds of it, Sanixer actually wasn't that keen to sell this because the data's a bit old and, the, and he described it as being two to three years old. So it's like someone giving you a, offering you a week old sandwich, only 50p. <laughs> well, in this case, it was only $45. For all that stuff. For, for what is it, over a billion unique records. So if you're wondering, you know, how valuable this is to the... <laughs> If you think your email address is so important, yeah. oh dear. So if the data is a couple so of years tiny. old, then what are we worried about? 
Well, I'm, I'm not that worried, actually. I think this is a great example of, you know, we see this quite often in computer security uh, community and in the press, that this story is interesting and it's worth writing about and it's worth discussing it for that reason. And it's an example of how there are these enormous collections of data, which in this case is actually an amalgamation of data from perhaps 2,000 breaches. So thousands and thousands of breaches. And it's a That's bit... a depressing statistic, isn't it? That 2,000 breaches. You think, you know, maybe in, in all of our lifetimes we might have had 12 or 13. But it isn't like that. It's like zillions of the Yeah, and these, are, and these are, you know, 2,000 breaches that are of almost no import. Like, you know, is... <laughs> well, these are the ones that don't matter. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't matter now. Yeah. Um, because, you know, another two or 3,000 have happened since and, you know, there's more current data uh, to be had, I guess. I think that this is interesting. This is not something that people should be particularly worried about, partly for the depressing reason that if you were going to be a victim of having your data stolen, this data stolen, the damage has probably already been done. In this particular collection, there are no super personal things like your home address, your credit card number, your home phone number, anything like that, right? It's just email addresses and passwords. To, to the best of my knowledge, yes, it's just emails, okay. email addresses and passwords. You can go to Have I Been Pwned and put in your email address and see if you're part of the Collection 1 data blob. Um, and you might feel like you want to go and change your passwords in some places. But I don't think people need to be too worried. They don't need to be taking urgent action about this. Another really interesting aspect of this story, um, which hasn't got as much coverage as, as it deserves, is that there's a reason this is called Collection Number 1. It's the, it's the biggest data breach on Have I Been Pwned, but that's not why it's called Collection Number 1. It's called Collection Number 1 because actually when Krebs got in touch with this Sanixer, it looks like there are five different collections of data for sale, some of which are twice the size of this one. So what should people do? What, what you should do is you need to draw general lessons from this. So don't panic. The damage has probably already been done if there was going to be any damage. However... You know, there's a reason these things aren't for sale for nothing. There is some value for the crooks, and that's probably in doing things like scams. It's perhaps useful if you're trying to send spam to have a collection of a billion email addresses to send it out to. It doesn't cost you very much to send a billion emails. So and we know that sextortionists, for example, like to say, hi, I know that your password is blah. Yep. And for a small number of people who haven't changed it and maybe used the same password on lots of different sites, they go, oh, golly, how on earth could they possibly have found that out? I yep. bet most yep. haven't changed their passwords, sadly. Oh, dear. I, think, I just think we're, I think we're in our own... Are you saying that the, I the think... security, the computer security community is mostly talking to itself? Yes. So again, I'm talking about drawing general lessons. And the other general lesson to draw from this is don't reuse passwords because that makes this stuff a whole lot easier. Because yeah. if you can if you can pilfer someone's password from one service and you've used it in 20 other services, it's dirt cheap for the crooks to go and find out if, if your username and password work somewhere else as well. That's what is meant by the jargon term credential stuffing, isn't it? It means the crooks get a password that they know relates to you for one site and they go and stuff it into the login box in 20 other sites. So if they think they've got your Facebook password, they'll try it on Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, your Gmail, Outlook.com, in case you've got an account there. And if you've reused it, automatically and instantly, they can map out same password works on five accounts. And so they're all, they're all gone instantly. Yep. And as we mentioned earlier, if your email account's gone, 
then the crooks can probably reset all your other passwords as well. Finally, we should probably address the 10-year challenge. So this is a media, social media challenge where people upload a photo of themselves from 10 years ago next to a photo of themselves from today in order to show off about how well or how badly they've aged. But is Facebook using these photos to train its facial recognition? Is it a trap, Mark? <gasps> Who would come up with such an idea? <laughs> yeah, this is a really interesting counter-meme, isn't it? So the, the, this is the latest thing that's gone viral on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and then, so through the middle of last week, the ball started rolling on this this counter meme on US TV and in in computer security websites. What if this is a trap? Because this seems awfully conveniently arranged for training Facebook's facial recognition on aging, because it's two photos. Because everyone's going to tell an unvarnished truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's two photos of the same person separated by a fixed period of time. And my goodness, what if Facebook are behind this? Uh, and I don't think there's any grounds whatsoever for suggesting that this is more of the same for so many reasons. The first is if you have if you've ever worked in or around a marketing department, you will know that everybody wants their stuff to go viral. And almost nobody manages it. Once it's been successful, you can look at it and go, well, it was successful for these reasons. Clearly, somebody made it to be successful. What you need to do, though, is you need to look at all the other things that have the same properties that didn't succeed. So I think if Facebook actually wanted to make something like this happen, it would be extremely hard. All they would do is they just wait for the ones that succeeded. And all the data is going on Facebook anyway, so they've got it. Yes. So that's the counterbalance to this. On the one hand, I think it's extremely hard for Facebook to manufacture something like this. On the other hand, they've got more than a billion users who are trying to amuse themselves for tens of minutes a day on Facebook, on Instagram, producing things like this. Uh, But I think uh, Duck actually mentioned a really important point as well, which is you've already given the data to Facebook. You know, the, the numbers are by 2012, 2013, Facebook users were uploading 350 million photos a day to Facebook. Each? It it feels like that. Um, But it had already become the most popular photo sharing website in the world. And that was back, you know, five years ago. Um, And it had already begun doing facial recognition on photos. It's been doing facial recognition on photos for eight years. So if you look at all of the face, all of the 10 year challenge photos, if you take that, you know, it's not even a rounding error. It is it's yeah. not even the tip <laughs> yeah. of the iceberg. And the whole point about Facebook is that you're contextualizing the photos. Yeah. Like you're saying, oh, it was my birthday. These are the photos of me and my friends from my birthday. So could the 10-year challenge be an attempt to skew Facebook's facial recognition data on the grounds that people are uploading carefully selected images of themselves? Could it be exactly the opposite of what everyone's afraid of? Facebook's machine learning is going to determine that nobody has aged at all. Ageing is not a thing. Judging by the celebrity ones that I've seen anyway, ageing is not a thing. Nobody's aged in 10 years, it turned out. Especially Mariah Carey, who did the same photo. Yeah, she, what did she say? I don't believe in time. I don't recognise time. <laughs> I guess what we, we should address, I mean, why are we talking about this now? So if you saw the rumours that this 10-year challenge is, is some sort of scam by Facebook and you decided to take extra precautions around those photos, then I think that is focusing you on the wrong thing and desensitising you to the fact that yeah. the vast majority of photos that, that you've shared with Facebook, you've already shared. 
So basically, if in doubt, don't give it out. Yeah. Regardless of whether this is a trap or not a trap, a scam or not a scam, whether you're uploading true photos or yeah. not, in general, the more you share, the more you give away about yourself, the more trouble you could land in in the future. Yep. Yeah. So we, we can't say definitively that this isn't some sort of ruse by Facebook. But the, the truth is that the way that you would deal with it if it is, is exactly the same as the way you would deal with it if it isn't. So but Seriously, you were saying that, what was it, several years ago... Facebook users back then, when the internet was slower and phones couldn't store as many pictures, people were uploading 350 million photos a day yep. to Facebook. Yep. Then this is, this is not even a drop in the ocean, the 10-year challenge. Nope. So don't focus on the tip of the iceberg. The bit you should be worried about is the giant lump underwater because that's what's going to sink you. So just go review your permissions. Make sure you're not sharing anything that you aren't comfortable sharing, and then enjoy the 10-year challenge. That's about all from us this week. Duck, where, where can we find you on social media? At DuckBlog on Twitter. Mark? Uh, you can find me at Mark Stockley, or much more interestingly, at Internet of Hens. Matt? InfoSecBody on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we are, of course, at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can tweet us with your suggestions for the podcast or you can email us at tips at sophos.com. And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.